0: Uh, At 1 a.m. on May 2nd, 2011, 23 U.S. Navy SEALs descended on a compound in Pakistan where Osama bin Laden was believed to be hiding. As you know, bin Laden was the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks which killed thousands of Americans. Though he had evaded justice for 10 years... Uh, On that night, he would experience the wrath of the U.S. armed forces as the SEALs made quick work of his defenses before eventually taking him out as well. Uh, Upon hearing the news, the victims of 9-11, their families, and many other Americans gathered across the country at Ground Zero, in New York, the White House. Uh, They gathered to celebrate all over the country. President Barack Obama summarized the impact of the operation by stating this, just four words. Justice has been done. Former President George Bush released a statement in which he said, this momentous achievement marks a victory for America, for people who seek peace around the world, and for all who lost loved ones on September 11, 2001. The fight against terror goes on, but tonight America has sent an unmistakable message. No matter how long it takes, justice... Will be done. Uh, The killing of bin Laden provided a rare moment of unity between Democrats and Republicans as both presidents saw in the operation the accomplishment of justice and even the pursuit of peace. So, why would I bring uh, this story up in church? Because it presents for us an example of wrath. And the execution of justice, which are then celebrated, and rightfully so. I do this because this morning our psalm is going to take us through one of those passages that, you know, when you're getting to in your annual Bible reading plan, can make you blush. Not sure what to, to do with it. Here in our psalm this morning, we have David praying that God would exercise his wrath against his enemies and so bring them to justice. Now, I'm human. I recognize that you typically go to church expecting to hear about love and joy, forgiveness and salvation, and rightfully so. One topic that is likely to make people squirm in church is the topic of God's wrath against sinners. And so it's usually avoided. But I think that it's a big mistake to avoid God's wrath. Because God's word has a lot to say about God's wrath. And Jesus himself, the love of God incarnate, talked about the wrath of God and even hell, not just occasionally, but often. God has given us his word for our edification. And so it behooves us to recognize that all of it there is for our good. And not just the easy parts to read. And so though this sermon may come as a challenge this morning, I ask you to embrace it. So this morning we'll consider what this passage has to teach us about Christ and about ourselves. We'll consider how God's goodness is tied in part, to his justice, and why that is a comfort for afflicted Christians and even a cause for worship. So, let's read our first three verses this morning and then we'll pray. Pick up with me in Psalm 69, verse 19. Remember, we're covering the second half this week. 69, verse 19. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come this morning humbly before you. Uh, We come before you recognizing that we do not sit in authority over your word, but that your word, which comes from you, your word which is described, uh, your, your son is described as your very word, it sits in authority over us this morning, Lord. So God, we pray that this morning you would use your word to give us a greater understanding of who you are so that we may sit in awe and in wonder At what a great God we serve. I ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, our first point this morning is the suffering lamb. Uh, I'm going to recap from the first half because that was now two weeks ago. uh, And then we'll pick up with this week. If you remember, uh, last week we looked, or two weeks ago rather, we looked at how the love of the suffering lamb is a comfort for suffering saints. We saw how God is not indifferent to the evil and the suffering and the pain that goes on in this world, but rather than being removed from it, he himself entered into it and even died and suffered for those who were complicit in it out of love for those people. Uh, We saw how the original context for this psalm was the experience of David. How he had enemies without reason. How he was suffering scorn and disgrace as enemies wanted to destroy him. And we talked about uh, the reason for that was because he was zealous for the glory of God. Remember, zeal for your house consumes me. That's this psalm. And yet we also remember that though the original context was David, that ultimately this psalm is pointing to the greater David, uh, Jesus Christ, who likewise suffered unjustly, even more so because he was a sinless person. He was scorned, disgraced, and killed. Why? Well, likewise because he was zealous for the glory of God, for his own glory, And he chose to go through with it, though he could have called legions of angels to come to his defense. He chose to go through with it because he loved his people enough to die for them. And yet, he was delivered from death. And we saw how just as David and Christ were afflicted, so Christ's followers can expect to experience affliction. Uh, And yet, his love demonstrated on the cross is a comfort for those who follow in his footsteps and experience affliction for the sake of his name. Lastly, we talked about how God permits his beloved children to go through times of struggle for at least four reasons. One, because he turns it for good. Secondly, because it advances his kingdom. Third, because it glorifies himself. And lastly, because it grows and sanctifies us. Well, as we pick up in our text this week, in verse 19, uh, we are coming to the third and final time in Psalm 69 that David will describe his own affliction. He says that he's scorned, disgraced, and shamed. He feels helpless. He feels hopeless. He looks for comforters, friends of any kind. He looks for sympathy from anyone. And he does so all in vain. Uh, he says, they gave me gall for my food and vinegar for my thirst, or sour wine, depending on your translation. Uh, gall, of course, well, not of course, I didn't know this. Gall was a... <laughs> <laughs> I looked it up. Gall was a kind of ancient poison. And uh, vinegar, of course, uh, vinegar has some great uses, like you know, dissolving the rust off of metal, Uh, or, you know, flavoring some food, but, you know, when I go out and I work in the hot sun for a few hours in the yard, I don't come back inside and say, hey, baby, why don't you pour me up a nice tall glass of vinegar? I'm dying of thirst. No. Gall and vinegar are adding insult to injury. David's already down, and they're kicking him while he's down. And yet... We recall that in Christ's affliction, that in love as he went to the cross, as he was suffering in their place, that they too added insult to injury with a crown of thorns. And if you went to John 19, you'd see that when Jesus said, I thirst, they got a sponge and filled it with wine vinegar and offered it to him so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. So, as we've seen so far in the psalm, David suffered Christ suffered, and his people should at least at some point in their life expect to experience some kind of persecution for the sake of Christ's name. And while God may permit his children to go through these times in life, he never loses sight of them. So as we move on from the suffering lamb this morning, we should note one last thing from verse 19. Look at it again. David says, All my enemies are before you. Brothers and sisters, though you may feel neglected and abandoned, as we remember those in the persecuted church around the world who have great reason to feel neglected and abandoned, we can be sure that God has not missed a moment of the trials of his beloved children, nor has he failed to take note of those who persecute his beloved children. So let's continue on. We're going to pick up in verse 22, and we're going to take a look at the vindicated lamb. So pick up with me in verse 22. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become a retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents, for they persecute those you wound and talk about the pain of those you hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. Uh, Well, as we move into the delicate portion of our sermon this morning, uh, I want to again remind you that to talk of God and of his wrath is vitally important for us. Because if we neglect the difficult aspects of who God is, then we find ourselves operating outside of the truth when we think about God. Our God then becomes a creation of our own mind. Now, I admit that this is not going to be one of my lighter sermons, and yet, if you'll stick with me, I think by the end of it, considering God and his justice will make the mercy of the gospel of the Jesus Christ that much sweeter to you. So let's again revisit verses 22 to 29. Here in the songbook of Jesus, his Spotify playlist, this uh, book of Psalms, which so often provides material for the children of God to pray back to God, here we find David, a sinner, a man after God's own heart, praying an imprecation upon his enemies. You know, you you read through this passage, and you're probably not picking this for your Christmas card. But let's dive in, and let's consider what it is that David actually says here verse 22, he uses the imagery of a table being set before his enemies. In the ancient world, having a table set before you was a kind of honor. He was praying that God would turn their selfish ambition, their aspirations to be honored into a trap or a snare. He prays that they would be blinded, those eyes that caused so many others to shed tears that they would lose their own sight and have their backs bent or that their loins would shake, depending on your translation. Either way, it's talking about them losing their strength. Uh, He asks that God would pour out his just wrath and his fierce anger on them, that their place would be deserted and no one would dwell in their tents, that they would have no posterity, no memory of them left when they departed the earth. And then verse 26 reminds us why David is praying this. Because the enemies of God have persecuted the children of God and mocked them. And note this, that in verse 26, the people of God are first wounded not by the enemies, but by God himself. Remember way back in verse 5, David says, I myself am guilty before you. So what's happening is that God, out of love for his children, is disciplining his children... As a loving father gives loving chastisement to his children. And the enemies of God are confusing the loving chastisement for God in David's life with the judgment of God. And they pile on like Job's friends and they condemn him. His enemies have confused discipline with judgment. And so David prays, charge them with crime upon crime, which is literally give them evil for their evil. He's asking that God would give them what their deeds deserve, which is to remove them from God's salvation. They would be blotted out of the book of life, that on the day of God's righteous judgment, they would not be included with the righteous who enter into his kingdom. So, to summarize this passage, David is not seeking personal judgment vengeance or retribution. He's not being petty. What he's doing is he's asking God to accomplish justice for the sake of God's glory, for which he is zealous, and for the good of his covenant people. David is not personally seeking revenge. And this is really important because through all the humiliation that David experienced in life, he knew that God was a God of justice And he trusted the one who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He rightly refused to take vengeance into his own hands, but he gave it over to God. Recall David being persecuted by Saul for many years, and Saul lies at his feet, and he has the opportunity to enact vengeance, and he doesn't take it. Uh, Recall David as he's fleeing Jerusalem because his own son has launched a coup against him, and Shimei is sitting there on the side of the road, cursing him, as David is surrounded by his many mighty men who could take Shimei out, and yet he refuses to take vengeance on Shimei. That said, David, in his role as king, was still one who enacted justice. Uh, He did not take personal retribution, but he still did seek justice for his kingdom, such as when the Amalekite who claimed to have killed Saul came to him, telling him what he had done, David put him to death because he raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. So, David pursued justice, he didn't pursue revenge. There's a difference there. Now, the word justice gets thrown around a lot today, in some pretty non-traditional ways, but I want to be clear what we're talking about this morning. When we're talking about God's justice we're speaking about God bringing punishment against wicked people in proportion to the evil that they have committed. And when we speak of the wrath of God, we're speaking of His righteous response to injustice. God does not let the guilty go unpunished, and that is a hard thing, but a good thing. I want to also mention that God's wrath is not a blind wrath like we think of with sinful human beings. He's not out of control. God is deliberate, and he is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, and he's described as slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is a merciful God, so for him to get to the point of wrath means that he has already been patient and merciful. So, the greatest injustice ever committed was actually not against David. David. David himself was a sinner in need of God's grace. No, the greatest injustice ever committed was against the greater David, Jesus Christ. He was the spotless, sinless lamb of God. And yet we see that his role as a suffering lamb was a one-time deal. Uh, Hebrews calls it a once-for-all-time sacrifice in chapter 10. It was necessary to pay the price for the elect to be redeemed, and yet having suffered and having risen from the dead and having ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, Christ now sits in judgment over all creation. The irony of his crucifixion is that those who thought they were judging him are themselves judged by the one they put on a cross, unless they seek his forgiveness. That's why Peter takes this psalm If you go to Acts chapter 1, and he applies verse 25 to Judas as proof of God's judgment against Judas for betraying the innocent Son of God. And so in the same way, Jesus will bring his wrath against all who reject him as God. Now, I recognize that this is a harsh topic, but if you'll stop with me and you'll think about it, I think you'll come away agreeing with me that the wrath of Christ is an objectively good thing. Not for the people under it, of course, but objectively, God's wrath is a good thing. To take this out of the realm of the theoretical, I'll give you this example. In 2014, in the northeast part of Nigeria, Boko Haram, an Islamic terror group, kidnapped. 300 mostly Christian schoolgirls to become cooks and concubines for their men. Even today, over 100 of those girls, eight years later, are still unaccounted for. Now, I would think that you would agree the parents of those girls have every right to be furious and demand justice against those kidnappers. And if you're not outraged by the injustice of that event or of other persecution, uh, uh, against Christians, then I think there's probably something deeply wrong with you. Well, if the persecution of Christians outrages the victims, their families, and Christians around the world, then of course the persecution of God's children outrages a holy and a righteous God. You see, when we really think about it, God's wrath is a good and comforting thing because it means that no one ultimately gets away with anything. It means that our God does not tolerate evil. David says, all my enemies are before you. God has accounted for everything and will not, the guilty, will not let the guilty go unpunished. And it is Christ, the innocent righteous one who suffered unjustly, who is alone qualified to bring God's justice against the wicked. Consider this picture of Christ from Revelation 19. As we move from the suffering lamb to the picture of the vindicated and glorified lamb. This is from Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows ...of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written... ...King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Christ first came as a suffering Messiah who died for his people. When he returns, he returns as a victorious, conquering king... ...coming to destroy his enemies. It took ten years for bin Laden to get American justice... It remains to be seen whether these Nigerian kidnappers will receive earthly justice. But I can assure you that no one escapes the justice of God. And this is a good thing. Though we live in a world full of evil and pain, God is bringing evil to an end. Now I think... If we stop and think about it, most people would agree that God destroying evil is a good thing. I think most people on earth would agree with that. But what it gets hairy is when we ask, who gets justice and who gets forgiveness? If we consider the witness of scripture, what we don't find is a portrayal of good people who God loves and Bad people who God hates. But rather, we find that all people are sinful. There's none righteous, no, not one. We've all fallen short of God's standard. Our sin is rebellion in the face of a holy God. The wages of our sin is death. Consider Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Paul says, This is the natural state of humanity in our sin. Because you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you, Christians, once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit. ...who is now at work in the sons of disobedience... ...among whom we all once lived... ...in the passions of our flesh... ...carrying out the desires of the body and the mind... ...and were by nature... ...children of wrath... ...like the rest of mankind. Paul is saying that... ...those who are outside of Christ... ...are children of wrath. That is... ...children destined to meet Christ... ...not as Redeemer... ...as Savior... ...as Friend but as a furious, conquering king. You see, we all like the idea of God's justice because we all have an idea in our head of those people who deserve God's justice. But in those ideas, very rarely is it that we find ourselves in that category. But then the scripture holds up a mirror to our faces called the law. And it shows us how we really look in light of God's glory and God's standards. And that we all, every single one of us, deserve his wrath. But brothers and sisters, that's the beauty of the cross. Because it was there that God paved a way for you to escape his wrath. It's it's why David himself, a sinner, could pray in verse 29, As for me afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me from your wrath. God poured out his wrath on Christ so that if you humble yourself before him, leave your sins behind and follow him, he will redeem you with his blood and give you his own righteousness as a gift that's for free. And so every one of us has two choices. We can allow Christ to bear God's wrath for us Or we can choose to face it ourselves. So, let me just draw out a few implications before we move on. Number one, uh, understanding the wrath of God actually empowers our forgiveness as Christians, right? We know we're supposed to forgive. But when you forgive, it feels like injustice. It feels like you're letting somebody else get away with something. Because you're called to forgive whether or not they apologize or try to make it right. When you forgive someone wronging you, you are eating the debt that they owe you. But when you understand the wrath and the justice of God, you recognize that's not actually the case. Because you recognize that God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so the person who has afflicted you is either going to face God's eschatological fury for their sin, or, like you, they're going to turn to Christ, repent, and seek forgiveness. In which case, we can praise God for that. Remember that Paul, the apostle, was first Saul, the persecutor of the church of Christ, who oversaw the killing of Stephen with pleasure. And yet, he became a great servant of Jesus Christ, as he was forgiven so, it empowers our forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act of faith that God is just. In a similar way, trusting in God's justice helps us as Christians to persevere when we face persecution. Now, in this country, uh, persecution usually doesn't look like it does around the world, right? So, we're not usually facing a life or death situation for our faith. Praise God for that. I hope it never gets to that point. But around the world, even today, many Christians do face a life-or-death situation when they choose to follow Christ. And knowing that his wrath is coming is a great comfort and encouragement to them facing persecution. Now, maybe this question has crossed your mind. I know it did mine this week as I was preparing. As Christians, is, is it ever appropriate for us to pray as David does here? that God would bring his wrath against those who hurt his children. Any volunteers? I'm just kidding. It's actually a bit of a debate in the Christian world. So I'll give you my best shot at it. Uh, first, I think we have to establish that with the coming of Christ, we have a greater knowledge of God's wrath and of his justice than David did. We understand the eternal nature of hell better than David did because we come later. We know that no one ultimately escapes God's justice. We should also note that Jesus in Matthew 5 and Luke 6 tells us to love our enemies. He calls us to pray for those who persecute us. And so I think we have to admit that that's primary here that we love our enemies, we pray for them, we're certainly not seeking revenge, but we're forgiving them. That said, forgiveness doesn't prevent us from praying that God would bring his justice to earth. Perhaps not on a personal retributive level, as David didn't take personal retribution. But when we're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven... We're praying that God would bring peace through judgment. And as it turns out, we're given a glimpse of the prayers of martyrs who are slain in the presence of God in Revelation chapter 6. And let's consider what they are doing as they praise God. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, which is also the throne When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as a sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free ...hid themselves in the caves... ...and among the rocks of the mountain... ...calling to the mountains and rocks... ...fall on us... ...and hide us from him... ...who is seated on the throne... ...and from the wrath... ...of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come... ...and who can stand? So these martyrs... ...in heaven are using the words of the psalmist. How long, O Lord, before you bring justice? And God doesn't rebuke them. He says, wait a little longer for my timing. Because when the wrath of the Lamb comes, it is absolutely terrifying. The people there in verse 16 are so terrified of the holy gaze of Jesus Christ that they flee to the mountains, wishing that they would just fall on them. Because they can't stand the gaze of the Lamb. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So let me ask you this this morning. Is that a possibility for you this morning? Falling into the hands of the living God? If you died today, would you die in your sins or in the free offer of righteousness that Christ offers you? If he were to return today, would you be cheering on the rider of the white horse as he brings justice and everlasting life? Or would his holy wrath drive you to attempt and flee to the mountains? Notice what I'm not asking. I'm not asking, have you lived a moral life? I'm not asking whether or not you call yourself a Christian, whether you were born into a Christian home. I'm not even asking... If you were baptized, if you trust in any of those things, then that means that the wrath of the Lamb is resting upon you today. What I'm asking you is this, has the blood of Christ covered your sin? Is he your only hope and life and death? And if so, praise God. If that's not the case, I urge you to turn to him this morning. To those who reject him, he is terrifying. But to those who love him, he is savior, redeemer, and friend. He is near to the sinful and to the broken. He shed his blood for sinners like me and like you. So Christians, I think we're called to pray for those who persecute us, that they would come to repentance. I think we're called to love those who persecute us, that we would not take revenge into our own hands and yet I don't think it's wrong for us to pray that God would bring his justice to earth. Those two aren't mutually exclusive. God is just, and that is a good thing. That is a comfort to us as we walk through an evil and painful world. There is an end point, and God will bring evil to a close. The fact that he does does this gives us yet Another reason to praise Him. Let's pick up on that in verse 30 to 36 as we close out our psalm. I will praise God's name in song and glorify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in him. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. Here in our last six verses, the tone of the psalm changes from judgment to deliverance. What a happy shift that is. We find the psalmist beckoning himself and earth to join in praising God. Why? Because he delivers his captive people and he delivers through judgment. Now, this was originally a psalm of David, as the title shows us, and most scholars think it was picked up and expanded upon by the Jews living in captivity in Babylon. And so the, the themes of David's life has, have taken on a special meaning for them. Just as God rescued David by uh, judging his enemies, they praised the God who they trusted to deliver them from their captors by judging them. But I want you to notice something important about David and the exiles here. Uh, they were trusting God and worshiping God for deliverance before they were actually delivered. Yes, God eventually rescued David from Saul and from Absalom and others by bringing judgment against them. Yes, God eventually did bring the Persians against the Babylonian Empire and so rescue his people Israel. And yet, we see in the worship of the psalmist here faith that God will act in righteous judgment even before he does act. As we live in this fallen world, we too live in the gap between the coming of the suffering Lamb and the coming of the vindicated Lamb. But we too are called to trust and praise God, knowing that though we live in an evil world, His deliverance will come. So let's see how that fleshes itself out in the text. If you look at verses 32 and 33 and then 35 and 36... You'll see the psalmist celebrating that God does deliver his people. Look at 32. He says, The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. Why? Because the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Look at verse 35. God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. And his people will settle and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it. Those who love his name will dwell there. You see, these words were written in exile before they came true. And yet they did come true. And if you want to learn more about that, you can go back and listen to our series from last summer on Ezra and Nehemiah and see how God kept his promises and brought his people back from exile. As Christians, we are comforted as we walk as pilgrims through this world that God will eventually deliver us into his eternal kingdom in the same way. And we also are invited on the basis of God's saving work to do as David does in 34. He calls heaven and earth to praise him, the seas and all that move in them. All of creation, all of God's creatures are praising God And David invites them to praise God. And then in verse 30, he resolves himself to do the same. Let's read verse 30 and 31 one last time. He says, I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs." Brothers and sisters, God wants your heart. God wants your praise. He wants you to recognize the cost of your redemption, to realize the power of his great love for you, so that you will glorify him with thanksgiving. He wants you to praise the suffering lamb who on the cross took your sin onto himself to satisfy the wrath of God, and to praise the vindicated lamb riding on a white horse to deliver his afflicted people through the judgment of the wicked. God wants you to praise Christ for who he is, God wants this for you. It's why he made you. And as we see David say, his, when God has your heart, he loves that far more than sacrifice. And this was true in the Psalms. Uh, just in Psalm 50, we saw God say, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. The world and its fullness are mine. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. David said in the next Psalm, my sacrifice before you, God, is a broken and contrite Heart. God didn't need the sacrifices of Israel. But as we think about our own lives, even as Christians, what is it that we do when we mess up? What is it we do when we sin big time and our guilty conscience starts to eat away at us or maybe the enemy is whispering in our ear of all the things that we've done? Is it not a system of penance? That we then enter into? Do we resolve? Well, I'm just going to read my Bible more this week as a kind of way to absolve our guilty conscience. Or I'm going to pray more this week. Or I'm going to give more money to the church. Maybe if you're from a Roman Catholic background, I'm going to pray 25 Hail Marys this week. And that will please God. But here's the reality. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to wipe your slate clean. God has already dealt with your guilt. And you can give him more prayer. You can read your Bible more, say more Hail Marys. You can give more money to the church. But guess what? It's already his. Do you know what God wants this morning, brothers and sisters? God wants your heart He wants your affection. He wants your praise. He wants you to know the joy of loving and worshiping him now and for all eternity. He loves you so desperately, he sent his son to hang on a cross at the hands of wicked men so he could bring you into his glorious kingdom by his power and not by your filthy attempts to earn his grace. You don't need to earn it. It has been freely offered to you, and it is an insult to the one hanging on the cross when you try to assuage your guilty conscience through any number of works. Now let me be very clear. I'm not saying don't give. I have a vested interest there, right? That's not why. I'm saying don't give from a guilty conscience. I'm not saying don't pray. I'm saying don't pray from a guilty conscience. I'm not saying don't serve those around you. I'm saying don't do that because you're trying to cover your guilty conscience. Trust in Christ and the blood that has wiped your slate clean and out of a heart of gratitude and joy for the God who suffered in your place. Offer him your heart and your affection. David says that is what pleases the Lord. God wants your heart. So as we close, let's remember that God is in control. Let's remember that evil, though it may seem strong, will not have the final say. Because our God is a God of justice. Let this be a comfort to you in times of affliction. Let it spur your own forgiveness of others. Let it draw your heart to well up in grateful praise for the Lamb who is both loving and just. And may it encourage us to go to others who do not yet know him as Redeemer and share the good news of his grace.